This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Well, welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce from Salem, Massachusetts, law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano. And uh, we are going to be discussing the issues surrounding the COVID-19 virus. We are recording this show actually on April 1st of 2020. I only say that because it seems like every day or every week, more information is coming our way regarding the impact of this virus and the crisis that has gripped not only the country, but the entire world. And those of us in the world of workers' comp are already identifying issues, questions, and concerns uh, among our clients, whether we represent employers, employees, and insurance companies. So we are bringing this uh, special edition of, of really how the legal community and workers' comp is addressing or will be addressing questions surrounding the virus. And with me today, I have two guests that are very experienced workers' comp attorneys. Mac Babcock is with the Babcock Law Firm in Denver, Colorado, and Mac is a well-known Colorado workers' compensation and personal injury trial attorney with a lot of experience in representing injured workers and plaintiffs. He is an officer of Willig, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, and very active in that organization, representing plaintiff or claimant attorneys around the country. And I'm also honored to have as our other guest from the West Coast, attorney Amy Peters. Amy is a past president of Willig. She is an attorney whose practice focuses primarily on longshore and harbor workers' workers' compensation cases. So, with that brief introduction, I would like to welcome Amy and Mac to uh, this particular podcast. Uh, thank you, folks, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Alan. The first question that seems to come up, um, and we've already had in our office just this week, uh, three potential clients call with COVID-19 workers' compensation concerns. So the first question and the big question, and I'm not sure we have an answer fully to the question, is how or why uh, are these cases going to be covered or not covered? So, Mac, from your perspective as a claimant attorney, what are the first questions that would be asked or would need to be satisfied to determine if a particular client came to you having suffered um, the disease and uh, incurred time off from work, medical expense, et cetera, how would you make a determination or begin to make a determination as to whether that exposure would be covered? So thanks for the question, Alan. In, in Colorado, most likely, I mean, there's some question as to whether or not these types of cases would be considered a, an injury which, or an accident, which is what it sounds like, you know, a specific event leading to the, to the exposure or what's called an occupational disease you know, a condition a worker gets because they're exposed to something over a period of time. Like many states, there are special proof requirements for occupational disease. 
diseases in Colorado beyond having to show that the condition occurred within the course of your employment while you were at work, within the, the confines of your work, and that it arose out of your employment, that it was connected to your work, your job functions sufficiently to deem it work-related. For occupational diseases you, in Colorado, you also have to show that it it's something that you were more exposed to at work uh, than you would have been exposed to it outside of work. And so these things are very fact-specific, right? You're going to have to find out you know, uh, and figure out if you can prove uh, that the person, you know, that th that exposure was more significant at work. So questions like, you know, what do you do for a living? How much were you exposed to it? I mean, you know, a healthcare worker versus an office worker, there's going to be big differences there. Amy, in your experience, have you found that there is also in various states a definition of infectious or contagious disease? as opposed to occupational disease. Occupational disease, generally, as it's understood, is a disease that results from the nature of employment. So somebody that works around, oh, has worked around asbestos and develops a medical condition related to asbestos exposure, that would be an occupational disease. How would you distinguish that from a contagious or infectious disease? And how do those intersect with occupational diseases in the realm of workers' comp? I think most states are treating them more like occupational diseases. Not many states that I found have very specific definitions of infectious disease. And for example, the Longshore Act doesn't treat them any differently. Here in Washington state, it's dating back into the 50s. Um, our state workers' comp system has allowed workers' comp cases to cover infectious diseases but they very much are treating them like occupational diseases other than we don't have the latency that we sometimes see with occupational diseases. And latency would be the delay between the exposure and the manifestation or the first sign of symptoms. I know we in asbestos, those latency periods can be um, a dozen years or more, but um, the latency period in the COVID-19 seems to be anywhere from five to 21 days, at least as far as we're being told. So that does pose an additional problem is trying to pinpoint when a disease is diagnosed, uh, where was the worker when he or she contracted it? So you're right. That is one of the, the issues here is, is the relatively short latency, but a latency nonetheless. On that point you just raised, uh, Amy, you're, you're right. You, anybody out there, especially those of you practicing workers' comp as a lawyer, uh, either for the defense or for the injured worker, you want to see what your state jurisdiction does in its workers' comp statute. For example, in Massachusetts where I practice, in our section one of our workers' comp law, we have a section that defines what is or is not a personal injury. And in our section which is Section 7A, subsection 7A of Section 1, it basically says that a personal injury would include an infectious or contagious disease with the nature of employment as a hazard of contracting such disease. So clearly, a healthcare worker who might subsequently be diagnosed with COVID-19 and is working in the front lines certainly would be working in an occupation where the hazard is contracting the disease. New York, which we unfortunately know is the so-called epicenter, in their statute, which is in Section 2, defines an injury as 
accidental injuries arising out of and in the course of employment and such disease or infection as may naturally and unavoidably result therefrom. And earlier in that section, they also define occupational disease as a disease resulting from the nature of employment and contracted therein. So it's very important to see if your particular jurisdiction defines occupational or infectious disease. And then the next issue would be, at what point is employment, all employment, a hazard of contracting the diseases? We are seeing people working in supermarkets, uh, where in other essential businesses where there is still some interaction with the public, and there is now a heightened risk, even if you are working at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods through this, where you know, I think an argument could be made that if these folks are working and exposing themselves to a risk, this now is a hazard or an employment where that there's an increased hazard. So do you folks see any other issues or questions uh, arising about defining a COVID-19 infection as an occupational or contagious disease? I think you were talking before about latency periods which, uh, you know, the, the incubation period for COVID-19, which they, they currently believe, as you stated, could be five to 21 days. Uh, one of the interesting things that I've thought about when these cases, and I have had a couple of calls already um, from the people you would expect. I've got an ICU nurse who, who we mm-hmm. think has it, an emergency room worker. And, and I think one of the interesting things, being in a state, Colorado, originally the mayor of Denver, issued a pretty strict uh, stay-at-home order first, and then a couple of days our governor, Governor Polis, uh, made made a statewide stay-at-home order, and I think it raises an interesting issue. As I said, in Colorado, you have that proof issue that you can't equally have been exposed to to the hazard outside of work, you know, as, as you were at work. But one of the interesting things with these proof issues that we're talking about is that Colorado is shut down. And so a lot of these workers who are going to the grocery store because they have to work because they're in an essential business or they're a healthcare worker or whatever, they're not necessarily being exposed out of work, right? We, this, our stay-at-home order has been in place long enough that these folks go to work and come home, go to work and come home. And so from a defense side, if they're going to deny these cases, they're going to have to show that an injured worker was going other places to be exposed. Now, if they have a family member in the house, that's one thing. But when the only thing the person is doing is going to work at home, it's going to be pretty hard to prove that they got that someplace else. Mm -hmm. Which actually leads me into the, the next important issue that we as attorneys have to deal with, which is burden of proof. Amy, in a case like this, uh, obviously, we have to rely upon expert medical testimony. Tell us about the burden of proof that we have to overcome representing a, an injured worker. The, the burden is on the claimant to prove that the injury or the infection arose out of uh, the employment and is not you know, exempt because of any infectious disease limitations in the statute. So what is what is the burden of proof and how do we overcome it? Well, again, that's one of those state-specific questions. But generally speaking, what I think we're going to see around the country is we're going to see workers, number one, having to prove that they have the disease. And we are having trouble getting testing in parts of the country. And so that is the number one barrier that I think we're going to see for establishing claims out of these COVID or coronavirus cases. 
And the second thing is, is we have to have doctors actually asking sufficient questions to establish a foundation for proving that they can show a connection to the work. And different states have different requirements to those connections to the work, whether it's particular to standard, arising out of standard, increased risk standard, or just merely in the course of employment standard. Um, but all of those standards are going to have to require doctors looking at the actual proof and making the connection between the proof and the diagnosis. Which leads to another question is that some doctors will tell us that well, you know, it's it's possible or it's probable that my patient, your client, contracted this virus at work, but I can't say so with any degree of medical certainty. And I know in Massachusetts and most jurisdictions, we don't have to prove that it's medically certain or reasonably medically certain that the exposure arose at work. We have to prove this by a preponderance of the evidence. So, Mac, what does what's the difference between preponderance of the evidence and medical or reasonable medical certainty in terms of the burdens we have to overcome to prove our case? Well, in theory, it should mean that, that it should be easier to prove these cases, right? Um, you know, for folks uh, listening to this podcast that may not be in the legal field, they're not uh, attorneys or, or uh, paralegals or judges, a lot of folks, when you say burden of proof, they're not sure what, they, what you mean. But when, when I explain that to new clients, everybody knows the, the, the most well-known burden of proof in a criminal case, which is you know that the prosecutor has to prove that somebody committed a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. That's just about the highest standard we have in our legal system. And again, as Amy said, uh, the burden of proof that applies to workers' compensation cases in these situations will vary somewhat from state to state. Most states are going to have that preponderance of evidence standard, which is a much lower standard you have to prove your case by just over 50%. It's, it's simply a tipping of the scales in your direction over the other side. Unlike the criminal standard where, you know, a jury is supposed to be 100% sure or 90% sure, right? That beyond the reasonable doubt standard, it's much lower. The other standard that you talk about, a reasonable, you know, a medical certainty, a doctor doesn't have to say, I know for sure that this is this condition and it happened at this time from this exposure, it does not have to be that certain. It's interesting if you talk to doctors about diagnosing conditions, they'll use a term called differential diagnosis. What the concept of differential diagnosis is, what, what doctors are taught in medical school is that they diagnose by eliminating conditions. You come in with head pain. There's lots of things that can cause head pain. And so they do a physical examination they take a history from the patient, they maybe use some diagnostic tests, right? And they start to eliminate the things that can cause head pain. And, and then what they're left with, they look at what is the most likely, uh, most likely cause. So when diagnosing with COVID-19, they're going to do the same thing. They may have a test. As Amy said, they may or may not, that's an issue, but that doesn't mean they can't diagnose it when you're looking at you know, is this a healthcare worker? Were they exposed? What are their symptoms? And so when you look at that compared to a preponderance standard, you know, they don't have to say, I can say for sure where this happened and that it's COVID-19. You can still meet a preponderance standard because it's simply tipping the scales in your direction. Right. At this point, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be back with our guests, Amy Peters and Mac Babcock in just a moment. Stay tuned. 
Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Okay, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where we're discussing workers' compensation issues surrounding COVID-19. When we last were talking with Mac Backcock, we were talking about the burden of proof, the preponderance of the evidence, whether a medical expert can opine that it is more likely than not that my client, a CNA in a nursing home, contracted a COVID-19 virus in a nursing home that had a population where there was a significant uh, exposure risk as opposed to contracting the virus at home or from a family member. Of course, these are very, as Amy had mentioned earlier, very fact-dependent cases. There could be inconsistent results with similarly situated workers uh, because there are other factors that may influence where somebody may have contracted the virus. For example, you could have Oh, perhaps a couple, a husband and wife, they both work in the medical field. They both are exposed in the course of their employment. And one of them, or perhaps both of them, contract COVID-19. From a defense perspective, they may say husband caught it from wife who got it at her workplace and that it can't be stated with any degree of probability that it came from his workplace as opposed to his spouse's workplace. So these are difficult questions, but One of the things we've seen happening, and we're getting updated almost every day, is that in some jurisdictions, in an increasing number, legislatures or industrial boards by regulation or emergency regulation are putting in place certain presumptions of of compensability. I know in the public safety, police, and fire communities, for years, uh, many jurisdictions have presumptions that if a Oh, a, a police or a firefighter develops lung cancer, it is presumed to have come from his or her employment. So, Amy, what is the landscape right now in the country in terms of states adopting presumptions of compensability for COVID-19 cases? For health workers, a lot of states are seriously looking at this issue if their governors have not already addressed it. Here in Washington State, our governor immediately went to our Department of Labor and Industries and started developing policies internal work captive state, meaning that we don't have private insurance. And so our state system immediately put a presumption that if you work in the healthcare field, you get COVID. It is covered under workers' compensation. Um, we're getting a lot of inquiries from other parts of the country as to how our state system is running this. Many governors in other parts of the country are looking at additional policies for other types of workers, such as grocery workers, delivery workers, longshore workers. Um, A lot of different industries are saying we should be covered under these same presumptions and we should be given protections because we are having to stay in the workplace, which is more dangerous. Now, in Washington, is this presumption that's been 
enacted um, a rebuttable presumption or is it a conclusive presumption, i.e., is it simply enough to show that you were a healthcare worker, that you were exposed to COVID-19 and you were diagnosed with COVID-19 and it becomes covered or does the insurance, well, you don't have insurance companies, but does the payor of the comp benefits have an ability to rebut the presumption with other type of evidence or factual evidence? Do you know? Here in Washington, if you're a healthcare worker, you get COVID. It is presumed the state of Washington is not looking at rebutting it because they'd be the one who'd be rebutting it. They just um, providing benefits okay. immediately to these healthcare workers. Um, I do know, like for example, in longshore cases, we have a presumption that assumes that a condition is work related. In that case, employers and their insurance companies can rebut it. And we haven't seen a lot of these cases yet. We're just starting to see our workers um, being diagnosed with COVID-19. But my guess is even these workers are going to have trouble when the only place our clients are going are to work and back home. Um, I'm sure that they could maybe do it in the instance that Mac described where, oh, their coworker also has risks. But I think even that's going to be difficult. And Mac, uh, what's the status of uh, any presumptions in the state of Colorado? <laughs> it is interesting that you are asking me uh, this question this morning. Uh, actually, uh, just before joining you on this podcast, Alan, uh, I had a phone call with, we have a, a similar to Willig, you know, Willig's a national organization for, for attorneys that represent injured workers. We have a, a, a professional organization in Colorado that's a, a state group of attorneys that represent injured workers. And I was on the phone with the, I'm a board member and past president of that organization as well. And I was on the phone with the current president of that organization because he has been appointed to a task force by our governor looking at emergency issues that need to be addressed with the current COVID-19 pandemic. And they're asking about uh, passing a presumption and getting legislative uh, language drafted. Uh, I've been on the legislative committee for that organization for some time, so we are in the process of drafting something. Amy raises a very important point because certainly I think the, the governor's office and the, and the head of the Department of Labor here, which is a cabinet-level position for the governor, they recognize the need to protect first responders and, and frontline uh, or emergency medical workers. But as Amy points out, those aren't the only people that are, are required to expose themselves to the public and cannot abide by the social distancing that, that we're all supposed to be uh, practicing at this point. You know, and, and these are not I mean, you know, these are not highly paid folks. These are your, you know, your, your janitors and your grocery store workers and folks working at gas stations and, and things like that. Other essential businesses that have to be open. And so you know, part of what the current president and I were talking about this morning is how to draft this so that it can go beyond, you know, uh, we all recognize the importance of protecting first response and emergency workers, but how do we draft language beyond that to protect other people who are, you know, having to work so that we can all get the very scarce toilet paper that is out there, right? And, and fill yeah. our cars with gas and things, so. Well, yeah, there are right now more questions than answers and as this continues to unfold as a social concern that reaches across our entire society, uh, this is going to be very difficult to unravel. I think, and chime in to either agree or, or amplify on this, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see all sorts of decisions coming out of different industrial boards and commissions 
uh, that may be inconsistent with each other. We are going to have these cases decided on a case-by-case, fact-by-fact basis, and we're going to have perhaps some trial judges or hearing officers or administrative judges that might be more liberal in interpreting the coverage and the workers' comp statute, others that may be uh, more conservative, others that may you know, really want to hold the line on the burden of proof. Um, this is going to be something I think that is going to require careful preparation and knowing your jurisdiction and understanding what you need to prove and how you can do it. And we may also see the reviewing boards, appellate courts weighing in on this as well, because um, these cases are going to be difficult. We found this out during you know, the aftermath of the 9-11 tragedy, uh, where a lot of first responders and other workers were exposed to all sorts of toxins with a latency period and a disease process that manifested itself many years later, even up to now, where we're almost 20 years away. And I know the New York and New Jersey and the other jurisdictions were wrestling with those same types of issues. And, you know, there's going to be political implications and economic implications to widespread coverage and uh, how this is going to shake out. You know, I wish I, I wish I knew. Do either of you have any closing comments you might want to make regarding this or anything we've talked about? Mac, I'll let you go first. As workers' compensation practitioners, you know, we, we deal with folks who expose themselves to extraordinary risks as part of their occupation for the betterment of society all the time. And I don't, I don't care if that's the firefighter that's running into burning buildings or the cop that is dealing with, with violence or the construction worker that, that is working at heights, right? All, everybody is contributing to society. And the way most of us contributed to society is through our work. It should not be that we ask people And I don't care if it's first responders and emergency room workers, medical workers, or or folks that are going to the grocery store. It should not be that we ask people to commit to us, to keep us moving forward, to keep us functioning, to keep us alive, and then not turn around and protect them, right? We do that too much, you know, to the folks in the military, to our firefighters, to our cops. It should not happen here. I agree. Amy? definitely mirror what Mac just said. As a workers' compensation practitioner, my job is to make sure that we are highlighting why these laws exist, and that is to protect workers. The workers are the individuals who are keeping our society moving forward. This pandemic has highlighted that everyday people are really the heroes of our society and make our everyday lives move forward. And those are the people that need to be protected. And all of us uh, workers' compensation attorneys, we just really need to push that forward when we're going before our boards and talking about these issues to make sure that workers are adequately covered. Thank you. Well, I want to uh, thank you all for listening to this podcast. I want to thank our guests, Amy Peters of Seattle, Washington, and Mac Babcock of Denver, Colorado. This is Alan Pierce wishing you all to stay safe, be well, and tune into our next podcast. Thank you and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. 
Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.